Rover Norquist is president of Americans for Tax Reform, or ATR, a taxpayer advocacy group he founded in 1985 at President Reagan's request. ATR organizes the Taxpayer Protection Pledge, which asks all candidates to commit themselves to oppose all net tax increases. Norquist also chairs the DC-based Wednesday Meeting, a weekly gathering of more than 150 elected officials, political activists, and conservative movement leaders. Today, he shares his views on the most effective forms of bipartisanship. Let's listen in. For those of you who have, who have the fortune, whether good or ill, to live in our nation's capital, uh, Grover Norquist needs no introduction. For some of the rest of you, he does. So I'll give him, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give him uh, a brief introduction that is not equal to what he deserves. Uh, I've been in Washington for nearly four decades. And for that entire period, Grover Norquist has been one of the most influential people in our nation's capital, elected or unelected. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think it would be a fair judgment that he has had more influence than a lot of people who've been elected to very high national office. Uh, why is that? Well, uh, three reasons. Uh, he... He founded, I believe, in the mid-1980s, a group called Americans for Tax Reform, which turned out to be an enormously influential shaper of, of, the, of, of the conservative vision of economic policy and, and has been for two generations. Uh, second, as part of that, uh, as far as I know, he probably wrote the famous tax pledge that hundreds and hundreds of elected officials have, have taken. And starting, I believe, uh, a year I'll remember well, always 1993, uh, I believe he organized something called the Wednesday Group or Wednesday Club, which turned out to be a major convening point uh, for conservative policymakers and, and activists. You know, I've I've heard stories of 100 or even 150 people in the room. I don't know, Grover can confirm whether those stories are accurate or exaggerated, but I've never found any reason to disbelieve them. And he has just been a, a fount of ideas and activity uh, for four decades now. Uh, and I'm sure we can all learn a great deal from what he has to say. So Grover? Over to you for some, you know, for some remarks, however long you'd like them to be, and then our usual big, vigorous Q&A session. Sure. That was probably the best introduction I can remember because you actually hit the three things I've done that mattered. There's some people that sort of, I don't know what's going on here, but some reason, whatever. But uh, the pledge where we ask people to put in writing that they will not raise taxes, we now about 90% of Republicans in the House and Senate. We've had uh, Democrats join as well, but usually while they were planning to switch parties at some point. Uh, and that simply allows people to state their position. I'm not going to raise your taxes. I am going to reform government. Because if you don't take tax increases off the table, you never get to reform government because you can always just keep doing everything you've done, pay for it, and spend more on whatever the next project is. So uh, politically, I know there's, not, there's no labels, in the 62 years prior to the pledge kicking in 90, 
four, where we got virtually all the Republicans, uh, the Republicans had controlled the House and Senate four of those 62 years. Since then, they've controlled the House and Senate two out of three years. So the tax issue is an important issue in American politics. The center-right coalition uh, is an effort to do within the broad center-right uh, movement, we call it the Wednesday meeting, because so that nobody owns it, it's not the Grover meeting or the ATR meeting. Uh, we started with about 20 people, we now average about 160. We're doing it on Microsoft Teams these days, but it had been uh, in person. And now 44 states have similar meetings. And that's one where uh, the way it works is you're allowed to talk about what you're doing, uh, about the future, uh, and talk for three minutes. So 30 people will present in an hour and a half for three minutes each. That includes congressmen or senators uh, or folks that are, uh, coming through uh, town. If you have more to say, put it in writing, share it with everybody. Uh, and that forces people to talk about what they're doing. So there's no whining at the meeting. There's no arguing at the meeting. There's no debate at the meeting because the meeting doesn't decide anything. But we just want to make sure everybody knows what everybody else is doing in the broad center right. We have the gay Republicans and the traditional value Republicans. And we've got each you know broad center right politics. And it's been very helpful in keeping to a minimum arguments within the broader center right. Uh, on left-right coalitions, bipartisan, nonpartisan uh, efforts, uh, I have a slightly different take than some. Uh, some argue bipartisanship is when the moderate Republican and the moderate Democrat get together and do something terribly moderate. Um, and uh, I would argue that some of the best successes on criminal justice reform and other uh, issues are actually started where uh, more conservative Republicans and more progressive Democrats both saw a problem. The number of people in prison, the length of time they were in prison, the number of crimes they were in prison for, uh, does this really have to continue? Uh, and they could have different arguments as to what problem they were solving uh, or why it all happened. Uh, but right and left got together and said, we both agree that there are too many people in prison for too long a period of time uh, and for too many crimes, things that are labeled as crimes. We need to think about how to get those numbers down. Some on the right go, this will save money. In Texas, they've not built two major prisons and they're shutting down prisons and crime continues to go down in Texas and the amount of money they're spending on prisons and the criminal justice system has also gone down. Others uh, look at the damage done to communities and to different end of families and uh, ask, is this really necessary? Uh, and, or should drugs, should victimless crimes be crimes in the first place? Uh, and so those two structures coming together uh, could work together on civil asset forfeiture, where the government stops, the police stop your car, you have money in your wallet, and they decide they think you must be selling drugs. And so they take your wallet, your money, your car, and you don't have to get convicted of anything for them to take it uh, permanently. Uh, Washington Post had a wonderful article a couple of years ago that more money is taken from people uh, by the police and civil asset forfeiture than burglaries in the United States. Uh, and so trying to get those numbers down and for different reasons, people can 
focus on this, but everybody, ACLU is one of the strongest opponents of civil asset forfeiture. Um, and certainly all the groups on the right that believe in property rights and not stealing people's cars. They, they go after houses, they go after hotels, somebody sells drugs in a hotel room, they take the whole hotel from the hotel owner, you should have known. You rent a car, you do something bad with it, they take the car from Ava, you know, uh, or mom, you borrow mom's car and you do something, mom's car gets taken. Uh, or don't do anything. Again, you don't have to get convicted in many states for that to be taken away. Uh, big success, small, well, big success was getting the ratio of how long you spent in prison for crack cocaine versus white powder cocaine, which was a 100 to 1 ratio. Uh, it was a bill passed in the, I believe, in the 80s at the bequest of the Black Caucus. But then 15 years later, they decided the whole thing was a racist plot uh, and had to be stopped. Uh, but because everyone was calling names, uh, we couldn't get anything done. So when the Black Caucus stopped calling names and privately owned up that this was their idea in the first place, nobody asked them to do it on TV, um, we were able to get a unanimous vote in the House, unanimous, meaning any one guy could have stood up and said, I vote, no, because it took unanimous consent to get this moved the way it was moving legislatively. And that person could have been on Fox as the only person in Congress who didn't like crack cocaine, who was really fighting the drug war, uh, and would have gone back to stage one. Uh, but we were able to get people to focus on the mandatory minimum question. A lot of the mandatory minimums were reformed in the first step bill that President Trump signed. Uh, we've worked on that with Republicans and Democrats, couldn't move the Obama administration, but eventually the Trump people signed on and didn't get in the way. They actually helped uh, uh, and moved things uh, forward. And again, that doesn't solve all the problems, but it's a good, one of the most important things we did was call it the first step. Because then everybody who had a thought about what two, three, and four steps should be didn't mind that this was the first step. If this was called criminal justice reform, people had gone, oh, wait a minute, there's more to be done, and you'd have had pushback. But we didn't. Uh, on that. Uh, the other, if you find principled activists on the right and left who are listened to by their own party or tendency, um, you know, if Senator so-and-so is for it, a conservative would feel comfortable. If Senator so-and-so is for it, a, a progressive would be comfortable too. Those people can go in a room and agree to something that's like the overlap on a Venn diagram. They're only voting for things they like. They're not, sometimes politicians go, you know, everybody hated the bill. It must be really good. I've never understood that. It could actually just be really bad, okay? Um, the, the idea that you want everybody to be unhappy, um, you know, well, we're gonna have pepperoni, pizza, and shards of glass. Well, no, I don't want any shards of glass, you know, but don't you like pepperoni? I don't want any shards of glass. I don't want anything that violates my principles. Let's find out what we can agree on and move that way. When we get people together, right and left, on principles, the ACL, uh, you may not be aware, but in the 1950s and early 60s, there was a massive problem of people killing each other with switchblades in the movies. Uh, and because it was in all the movies, uh, legislators across the country passed laws against carrying knives uh, and made it a felony. Uh, the tens of thousands of people in New York get picked up for this over, over the years. Uh, 
And then the cops go, so you want to play down from the felony, the knife in your pocket? Uh, and we've gotten the ACLU and the NRA to both come in and the, all the black structures, organizations as well, come in the black caucus in each legislature and say, let's not put people in prison for having a knife in their pocket. For starters, it's a tool for a whole bunch of people. Uh, and uh, we just got New York to legalize knives. Uh, and Texas was not the earliest adapter, uh, but about 18 states more recently have gotten together and said, you know, let's not be throwing people in prison or threatening them or getting them to plead down to something else. Uh, and again, right, left, both together. Some see it's all about race. Some see it's all about the Second Amendment. The point is people's lives are being ruined, destroyed, damaged, and let's uh, begin to move move together. When Ferguson uh, happened, the uh, young black African-American was killed by a policeman who was either he was wrestling with or he was far away. Um, DNA said they were wrestling, but it was a big deal. And uh, it it talked to the police and the local pop uh, the uh, citizens of Ferguson not liking each other very much. And the, the Obama administration went and took all of the emails that they could get. And um, then they came and they dumped it on my lap and said, this is yours. We don't know what to do with this. Well, why is it mine? Well, it turns out, I run a taxpayer group, that Ferguson was raising 30% of their budget with fines and fees. And the lady who's in charge of the budget was sending letters, emails to the police. Get your speed traps over here. Why? Some kid got hurt? People are speeding? No, that's where we're making the money. Uh, and then they would get little notices in their pay packets. If you don't give out more tickets, if you don't give out more fines, you're not getting paid at the end of the month. And so the cops, every time they ran into people, they were stealing their money. Um, and so you had IRS agents with pistols walking around, uh, not you know, saving dogs or getting cats out of trees or helping little old ladies cross the road, but just irritating people all day. And the legislation that they passed in Missouri was to take the, put a cap on how much any city can raise with fines and fees. And that flows into projects with uh, uh, Hertzberg, the uh, now Senate leader in uh, California. But years ago, when we started talking about this, he was, I think, on the other body. Uh, and California and eight other states have, have banned the use of withholding your driver's license because you have owe a parking ticket or a speeding ticket. They take your driver's license away if you're running into people or drinking too much and crashing up if it, you're unsafe, but not as a way to force you to pay fines and fees. I mean, when you think about this, this, this really is the old crazy situation that the British had of debtors' prisons, okay? You owe a bunch of money, we put you in prison. Well, how do I earn the money to get out of prison? You owe the state or the city or, or the, the, the local uh, traffic cops a bunch of money. You are incarcerated in home, house arrest. You can't leave your house by car. Um, and you walk somewhere, I suppose, but you can't go to get a job somewhere uh, that you have to drive to, And but you owe us a bunch of money, and every month that you don't pay it, then the fines go up higher and higher. Uh, so we're beginning to roll that back, a right-left coalition saying this is just ridiculous, the right to travel, the right to get a job, the, right, the ability to get a job is just too important uh, to 
to hold that hostage to somebody owing um, fines and fees. So those there's some of the examples of projects where we've had very good left-right uh, coalitions, um, and I think they've made some real progress on uh, actually passing legislation. And uh, it helps when somebody with my reputation of being the hard, tough guy because I'm against tax increases. Uh, on the mega issues, there's not a compromise. There's no, there's no tax increase that's ever a compromise. It's, it's, tax increases mean somebody just lost. Uh, a tax cut means somebody, you know, one team is moving the ball or not. Uh, there's not a compromise on a mega issue, but there are thousands of other issues where there's a great deal of compromise uh, that can be moved forward. Compromise meaning, I got something that was important to me. You got something that was important to you. Neither of us sacrificed on principle. We might each look at it and go, you know, this would have been better with seven other things in the bill. True. And the other guy you worked with thinks a different seven things should have been in the bill, which meant no bill. So you figure out where the Venn diagram overlaps. You work on that. Uh, I'm just uh, working today uh, with Cartwright, Congressman from Pennsylvania, on a bill uh, liberalizing the ability to compensate people who contribute a kidney. Now, you're not supposed to pay somebody to, to buy their kidney, but this law would make it clear that, that, that if you give your kidney, it's okay for a foundation or a person to cover your hospital costs, your time off work, buy you insurance if you ever need a new kidney. Um, and when you look at the numbers, 7% of uh, Medicare is uh, renal failure. Um, you know, the, the, the amount, it, it's up like $80 billion a year that we pay to keep people on machines not having a kidney because we've made it difficult for people to contribute a kidney. Um, so that, that's going to be, it's a very good, interesting Republican, Democrat. I just got the Republican co-sponsor and we're looking to get some more uh, on that. Uh that thanks work for a start. That works just great. Uh, and uh, we now have two people in the queue, and one who one who posed uh, what sounds to me like a question in in the chat. Does it have and the I, you know the Harvard question where you do the inflection at the end of the statement? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, but uh, let me just. Let me just read what I'm going to interpret as a question from Pitch Johnson, uh, who says or asks, please give us your own background, where you went to high school, where you went to college, what your job history is, your, your record of public service. You can interpret those terms any way you want, but he'd, he'd just sort of like to know a little bit more about you, and I doubt that he's alone. Oh, okay. Uh, born in... Western Pennsylvania, uh, lived in Atlanta for two years uh, as a kid from grade, from kindergarten on, I grew up in the suburbs of uh, Boston, Cambridge, Lexington, Weston, Boston, um, and went to school uh, in that area as well, inside the 128 Beltway. Me and the entire Dukakis campaign um, were within the 128 Beltway. Uh, I went to uh, public school, uh, Weston Public High School, uh, about 12 miles directly. There's a little thing in the town that says 12 miles to Boston. It was evidently where you had lunch if you were taking a 
in, in the 1700s, if you were taking a carriage from New Boston to New York, you had lunch in, at the Golden Ball Tavern uh, there. And I went to Harvard undergrad, studied economics, and then uh, came down and ran the National Taxpayers Union, which was the only national taxpayer group at the time. Uh, and then went back and I went to Harvard Business School, came down, worked with the Republican Party, uh, came down with Reagan, uh, and uh, ran something called Americans for the Reagan Agenda, which was sort of an outside group in support for the Reagan Agenda. Uh, went to the Chamber of Commerce, wrote speeches, and did economics work uh, there for two years. Uh, and uh, then the White House asked if I would run American. They actually built Americans for tax reform uh, and to be the outside group. Sort of like, remember Obama had the working for America? He, he had a C4 that he set up. Um, and very similar to what the uh, Reagan people did. They set up Americans for tax reform, gave it to me, and then I ran it to enact the Tax Reform Act of 86. And to get that done, I created the Taxpayer Protection Pledge, where people in office or candidates for office have a written commitment that they won't raise taxes, public, written, dated, witnessed, uh, not that we don't trust you or anything, uh, and getting uh, that out to people, because the fear was that as much as people liked what was seemed to be happening in the 86 tax reform bill, rates down, broaden base, simplification, less government using the tax code to tell you what to do with your life, uh, the fear was that at the end of the day, when 12 people went into a room, uh, it would turn into a tax increase. Uh, and so when we had 100 congressmen, 20 senators, and one president say, if what comes out of the smoke-filled room at the end of the day is a tax increase, we're a no on the vote. And it wasn't a tax increase. Actually, it's a $60 billion tax cut, which was filled by selling farm uh, loans to, the, to banks. Thanks, Grover. I now have uh, five questioners lined up for you, uh, and I'll recognize uh, Neil Modell first. Neil? Mr. Norquist, thank you very much for uh, participating. Uh, my question has to do with your crystal ball as far as taxes, as a result of all of the spending that both the federal uh, government has spent and the situation that the cities and the states are in, and many of them were in before this, that's now just gotten significantly worse? Uh, a couple of things. One, that's the question? That's the question. More? That's the question. Okay. okay. Um, the, the effort to spend and spend and then show up to the, to the Republicans and say, now it's your job to be responsible and raise taxes to pay for the spending um, was what we were trying to stop with the pledge. So when Obama came and said, I've spent all this money, I need to borrow another $2 trillion, um, I expect you to raise taxes. And we had a phalanx of guys who said, taxes are not on the table. Let's reduce spending. You didn't have to do it all at once. But remember, the, the demand from the R's was you got to cut spending $2 billion, $2 trillion from over the next decade from what you were expecting to do. Now, Clinton did this when the Republicans took the House and Senate. They dropped all of the spending he had planned by $200 billion a year uh, after 94. So that's how you ended up with the balanced budget, the collapse of spending that hadn't happened yet, but that they were planning uh, to do, and that flatlined that. And then you had the sequester, which 
that Obama assumed the Republicans would never tolerate for defense. Um, and that was a huge fight to get the R's to suck it in and not do with the defense spending what they would have otherwise done. Uh, and so the goal is not to allow overspending to be an argument for permanent taxes, for permanent overspending, but to force states, and you can see states which had overspending problems, uh, Arizona, Wisconsin, new governor comes in, massive spending, overspending, and they literally, without a tax increase, took it down. Unless you take taxes off the table at the state level, you never reduce spending. Um, at the federal level, the idea that you can trade taxes for, oh, we'll have a tax increase in spending cut, like they promised Reagan twice, taxes went up, spending went up more than before the deal in both cases. Then they came to uh, Bush, not to Bush, 41, and offered him not $3 of imaginary spending cuts, but $2 of imaginary spending cuts because he was a cheaper date. Um, seems to me if you're going to cheat somebody, you could at least offer them 10 to 1. You know, you're not paying it anyway. Um, but they didn't. He went in for 2 to 1. Spending went up more and faster than before the deal. And taxes went up too. Uh, so we've tried it. Why don't, we, why don't we do a tax increase and a spending cut? It hasn't happened. Uh, at the state level, you get the best approach when you just say taxes are off the table now. What, how do we rethink things? And you can drop spending. At the state level, there's only one state that has kept its spending uh, at, the same, at, at the same percentage of people's income. I mean, it hasn't gone up any faster than the wages of the people. That's Florida. In the last 18 years, Florida spending, they're spending the same percentage of your income that they used to. They're not spending, you're not, Florida's government is not getting richer faster than you are earning more money. Um, that is the only state that has done that. If all states had simply said, we're not raising spending faster than your income, every state in the country would be in significant surplus, including California. So uh, this is a long-term project. You don't get there by cutting, you get there by reforming government. I'm not terribly interested in cutting government. I am interested in reforming government so it costs less and does better. And that's where you can get agreement with some on the left, such as with the reform I'm that we're talking about on uh, how, you, how you deal with uh, kidney transplants, because that is a tremendous reduction in spending over time by reforming something else, which is how do you make it easier for someone who wants to contribute a kidney to a relative or a friend, but they don't, you know, but they want to make sure the risk is covered. They want to make sure their costs are covered um, without going to the other extreme of buying kidneys from people in New Guinea or wherever they think they're going to sell them from. Thanks. Uh, next question comes from uh, Robert Zadek. Uh, good afternoon, Grover. Thank you very much for appearing and for sharing your wisdom. Um, I have two questions. They're unrelated. I hope you'll be able to answer both. Uh, none, none of them, I think, require especially long answers. Uh, okay. First, as to the issue of the core mission of cutting taxes, and you spoke about the dichotomy between state government, no. which are basically required balanced budgets, and the federal government, which can print money and borrow money. Um, focusing at the federal level, um, your real mission seems to be to cut spending, which I couldn't endorse more. Cutting taxes doesn't really 
affect spending because of the possibility of borrowing ad infinitum. So um, is your mission really to cut spending? And hopefully by cutting taxes, you'll accomplish the ultimate mission. That's my first question. Second is, um, as to two issues that are near and dear to my heart, which is uh, uh, organ donors, the ability to sell not only kidneys, but all body parts, uh, which are criminalized uh, as of 1978. Uh, as to that issue and criminal justice reform, I'm going to ask you a political question. Both of those seem to have intense bipartisan appeal. They're easy ones because there is no, nobody's axe is being gored in either one. What is the political difficulty in accomplishing so much more that has been accomplished up to now? Who are the opposition forces that have so much power? Sure. Um, let me start with the first one on criminal justice reform and organ donation changes. Uh, criminal justice reform may look easy. <laughs> I've been at it 20 years. Um, if it was easy or I was smarter, we'd have been there faster. Uh, people were terrified of ending up being seen as weak on crime. Uh, and so you, you had conservatives who didn't want to get primaried and liberals who didn't want to lose in the general election. And they said, Mike Dukakis. Okay. Uh, and so we had to focus on we, we worked it through the conservative states first. Texas was first, okay? Um, and so you showed people that you can reduce the number of people in prison, the length of time they're in prison, and crime keeps going down, not up. Of course, uh, of yeah, course. So, so part of it, 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 we didn't take the easy ones. We made them doable. And in retrospect, it looks easier than, than the next mountain we want to climb. Uh, there's a lot left on criminal justice reform on the table. Those those sheriffs really like civil asset forfeiture. This is billions of dollars we're playing with that they steal from people uh, and don't want to be told no. And they are very powerful politically. This is we 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 won everything you could ask for in New Mexico. But the governor, if you read her statement at the time, the lady Republican governor um, who came out of the prosecutors and. It, her statement on signing the bill read like a statement for vetoing the bill. I think she changed her mind halfway through and just changed the first sentence. Um, there was a lot of pressure there. Michigan has done very, very uh, well. Uh, so I think there's a lot. Look, you look for you know, and because there's trust on that you could work with somebody. I've worked with Ralph Nader on a whole series of issues. And he calls me all the time on things that we can't work together on, but he checks, you know, how about this? I said, no, Ralph, that one, <laughs> we're not gonna be on the same team. But it, you know, if there is an option, um, we've worked together on a series of issues that uh, unite right and left and make some real progress. So you can go back to people you've worked with before and say, well, what about this issue? Is that something that that works? I went to the ACLU on the on the knife issue, uh, and some you know, and so that was very very helpful. It made it possible in New York. Uh, otherwise, wouldn't have, wouldn't have happened. Um, and so, I, I I don't think we've done the low hanging fruit. There's much more to be done, and part of it is you've got to reframe the question. You know, what is it we're doing here? If people are afraid. 
that poor people would sell their kidneys. Well, how do you uh, take that fear out? And so, you know, you, so who's against this stuff? That some of the police are against reforming civil asset forfeiture. Some of the prosecutors love those, you know, mandatory minimums. You know, if I charge you with this, you're going to be in prison for 40 years. I testified against mandatory minimums on the crack cocaine. And so I had them all in front of me. And every one of them reads like a press conference. I'm really, really, really against dirty pictures of little children, 45 years. That's how much I care. And you don't care as much as I care because I said 45 and those wishies had 34. And now it's 45 for me. Uh, treason, by the way, is five years. Um, but uh, so stay away from the dirty pictures. But, you know, so they, they came up. I think we can replicate this as you, long as you understand you're dating, you're not married, you don't have to agree on everything else, you're working together and nobody's asked to sacrifice on principle. You know, you can't come to me and say, Grover, I got a great plan. There's a little tax increase in here, but the rest of it you'll really like. Come back to me with a plan that doesn't have a little tax increase. Um, you asked about core mission. The core mission is, is, is uh, increasing liberty to maximize the individual liberty that individuals have in their lives today and all of their lives. And that means taking less of their money away because that's taking time away. It takes time to earn money. You take that, you're, you've taken their time from them. You've taken their time away from family, away from everything else they want to do in life. Uh, and spending that can often end up encouraging people to do things that they don't want to do and you don't want to do. But if you make it available and they pay you to do that, uh, you have all sorts of challenges. So I think reforming government to be less constrictive in people's lives costs less and you don't have to take as much. Uh, and at the federal level, we've had real success in spending restraint. At, at times, we can do better, uh, but you don't win on this until you fix the entitlement problem. And we were this close <laughs> to doing that, except some idiot in Alabama forgot to elect a Republican, to nominate the right Republican. Uh, and instead of reforming and block granting all of the welfare programs, which was supposed to happen in 18, it didn't happen. So we'll be back. We'll get, as with Clinton, as Clinton did with welfare, welfare, aid to families with dependent children, now TANF, uh, you do that with the other means-tested programs and let 50 states figure out what works and keep the money they save while capping the spending so that it doesn't grow faster than people's incomes, you save trillions over time. And you don't have to cut and slash and you don't have to, you know, nobody got thrown off welfare under Clinton's reforms, but people did reduce the number of people on AFDC. Reduce the cost and states handle it better. So next on the list is Larry Hirschfield. Yeah, yeah. My question was was similar to an earlier one, and I'd, I'd ask again. Appreciate the how you see federal taxes, given um, given what we're going to be up against, and given deficits, and given inequality as an issue, and so forth. Thank you. Uh, I think federal taxes. Well, we've seen the success of the 2017 effort. We took our corporate rate to 15, and money that was overseas came here instead of going the other way. Companies are not leaving the United States because we used to have the 35% corporate rate, highest rate in the world, higher than communist China, higher than all of our competitors uh, in the world, Germany, France. Uh, we took that down. 
very helpful and successful in terms of getting economic growth. One of the challenges, the, pro the president doesn't quite understand that tariffs are taxes. Tariffs are taxes. And he has raised taxes with his tariffs. Tariffs are taxes paid by the American people. American taxes on Chinese goods are paid by Americans. Chinese people pay taxes on American goods if China puts a tariff on them. But this is, this is the, the tariff wars are wars of choice. And you only, the, it's all friendly fire. All the damage done by the tariff war is done by your team. Um, don't do wars of choice. Presidents figured that out about Iraq. Need to work on him on uh, on tariffs and tariff policy. Uh, I, I think we can hold the line on spending as a percentage of GDP uh, and deal with the entitlement reforms which bring spending down. And that also includes the Pentagon. Um, former uh, comptroller for the Pentagon, uh, not my brother, but his predecessor, uh, came up with a bill that would drop 200,000 civilian employees from the Pentagon through attrition uh, and save tens of billions of dollars over a five-year period and uh, significant amounts going forward, simply bringing the tooth-to-tail ratios that we had during the Cold War back to where they were. We don't have as many soldiers. We don't need as many bureaucrats in Washington managing those soldiers uh, as we did. Uh, he believes you could take 200,000 down and not miss them. That's a lot of money. Uh, next is Michael Falcone. Great. Thank you. And thank you, Mr. Norquist, for uh, being here. Um, you, uh, as much as anybody, I think are symbolic of an, of an absolutist position that's been quite successful, uh, not just in Republican, but some cross the aisle tax policy and fiscal policy. But some would even credit it to uh, formation or, or uh, foundation of like the Tea Party movement, which I know you've been involved in. I'm wondering if you have um, any regrets or any issues relative to unintended consequences or people taking what your focus has been and maybe misapplying it. Any um, regret, regrets or moments of pause or, or areas of debate about consequence? Oh, well, lots of regrets on things not done, uh, thoughts not Fights not fought, um, uh, but mostly, I mean, I just, I just keep at it. I'm not going anywhere. I haven't, uh, uh, except for being busy or not having as large a structure as you might like, but that's why we have a Wednesday meeting and 44 center right meetings in the States and 25 overseas, you know, uh, Tokyo, London, Hong Kong, even still, uh, in terms of, of structure. So you just have to keep replicating your projects and what you're doing. Um, that I mean, the Tea Party was this incohate with uh, anger and fear at the massive spending and the tax increases that, that uh, Obama was bringing in and where was this going to end. Uh, they didn't end up, because they were largely all denied uh, 501c3 or c4 status and couldn't incorporate, None of them are still around anymore, whereas the tax reforms movements of the late 70s are, are major structures in, in the states where they were started. So they've continued in Iowa and California and other, Texas and other states. Um, that was a the political movement strangled by its inability to legalize itself. It had to stay outside of the ability to get a $100 check contribution. Um, 
And then it got hijacked by the anti-immigrant uh, guys uh, and just beat it to death. It just it fell apart. So that if there could have been a way to have harnessed the good energy there uh, and folk keep it focused on spending, um, that would have been useful, but it just got tugged in a hundred different ways. And anybody with a microphone said they were Tea Party and then they would go off and do weird things um, like yell at immigrants. Uh, next up, uh, Mary Moore Hamrick. Thank you, Bill. Uh, Grover, Mary Moore here. You started, Hi. you uh, in your remarks that some of the best successes were when you get more conservatives on the right and maybe more uh, moderates on the left to see a problem that needs solving and bring them together to solve those problems. Given we're here with the Problem Solvers Caucus and No Labels or No Labels Sports Problem Solvers Caucus, what issues do you see? What are maybe three issues or a couple of issues in the near term and or going into 2021 that you think are most ripe for addressing that we as a nation should come together on and, and find some solutions? Uh, I think continuing the various projects on civil asset forfeiture, uh, on uh, criminal justice reform, to include civil assets forfeiture on uh, mens rea, uh, the idea that you should know it's a crime if you're going to go to jail for it. You know, um, uh, people can end up in prison for violating some law they were completely unaware existed, uh, or a foreign law that they didn't know existed, uh, or a regulation. There's 600,000 of those that can put you in jail uh, or get you significant fines. You probably haven't read them all. I have not read most of the 600,000. Uh, and 600,000 is a guess, maybe more. Uh, so I think there's a lot of room on civil asset forfeiture. I think on uh, allowing um, people to uh, continue to drive their cars, even if they owe um, tickets, on fines and fees, getting that down to a smaller percentage of any town, city, or state's revenue, um, and take away the incentive for policing for profit, where if a policeman finds you, he gets the money, or he takes your, your assets, your car, somehow his department gets to sell that car and they get the money or they get the car. Um, those sorts of challenges uh, strike me as, as helpful. You're seeing it now. Nobody can talk about it because everybody's busy being political. But what have we learned from the COVID crisis, the, the, the virus? Since the virus hit, there have been over 700 deregulatory moves because states and the federal government found out that the structures and all the little rules they had got in the way of fighting a virus. The CDC had the government monopoly on coming up with a, a vaccine. And they, nobody else can do this, just us. Well, they did it once, it didn't work. We lost six weeks because they had a monopoly. They got slapped down and then they said, Anybody can go out and do it, and everything from universities to uh, companies were out there doing the testing kits, testing kits. I'm sorry, there was the monopoly on testing. And, but then they also wanted a monopoly on vaccines. That's not happening. The guy who's managing that now is out of the Pentagon. He's taken, I think, 16 vaccines from start to, to, to marketing and so on. So he knows how to speed it up. And they found, as they did with AIDS, you know, you can... You can do parallel tracks. You don't have to do them one and then the other and then the third one. You can do them at the same time to speed things up dramatically. You can use what something we learned from the French or the British or the you know Swiss uh, 
they actually have very clean laboratories. It's okay to trust their stuff. You know, double check it if you want, but don't act like it didn't happen. Um, so, and then all these states have these terrible laws giving, you know, little Caligula's that all this power as governor to tell people whether they can go to church or not, or, you know, go on a boat by themselves, you know, um, or buy birdseed. Um, so when they're already in a store, I mean, that, I think you'll see a tremendous culling back. I know Ohio's putting together a list of the dumbest things that governors imposed on states that did nothing to help health, nothing to help health. Um, and putting those into a bill and saying, you know, in Ohio, no matter who's governor, this is a list of things you can never, ever, 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 ever do. Um, and getting, so taking some of that excess power that governors grabbed in when they wrote those emergency bills and culling that back. Um, the number of states are allowing it, at the side that you pull off on the road um, uh, and it, it, when you went off the highway, allowing um, the truck uh, restaurants to show up there and provide food there. You know, I think that's a great idea. Only four states did that. California is one of them, Arizona. Um, I think all states should consider allowing that to happen and doing it in the future. So we're finding a lot of government getting in the way and we it was always a problem to do certain things it slows things down but when people are dying you notice that slowing things down is not a good idea um and it gets in the papers so we've really i mean i've tried oh um right to try uh which is a i don't know if you guys have focused on this but this is the one that came out of arizona 40 plus states passed laws that said, if you're, you are a relative of yours is dying uh, and you're not gonna make it for very long if you have terminal disease, we say that any uh, drug, pharmaceutical, that's been tested that's safe and it won't kill you faster than what you got, but hasn't yet been tested for effectiveness and that's two or three years away or more, you can have that in the States, it's legal. So it's like legalizing marijuana state by state. The FDA still said it's illegal, fought it the whole way, fought it the whole way. To this day, they don't like this. But the federal government, because the states had passed it. Look at, think about this when you're working on something, whether it's legalizing marijuana or hemp. Hemp got legalized state by state uh, and then federally. Um, they got uh, Mitch McConnell as their lead sponsor in the Senate, okay? I don't think it didn't start that way. But you go state by state, convince state legislators that an idea works, it's safe, and safe means nobody lost an election as a result of this, it's safe. Uh, and then you go to Congress, no state legislators scared of the FDA. Congressmen and senators terrified of the Food and Drug Administration. You know, um, And so when they passed it, they showed up in Washington, it passed almost unanimously. Some D out of New Hampshire owned by the pharmaceutical industries was the guy trying to stop it at the end of the day, but it didn't happen. And Trump signed it, and, and there are a whole series of liberalizations like that, all off-label uh, medicines, where the doctors know that this medicine that's been approved by the FDA for A is also good for B, C, and D, and they give it to their patients, and they tell all the other doctors, but nobody else is allowed to say it out loud. If you bake the medicine, you can't tell people, you know, by the way, doctors find it very helpful for these other things. Um, they're starting state by state to have doctors stand up and say, you know what? I want everyone to know that the off-label does this, and I know it's illegal for me to tell you that it's not a patient, but it's true. And 
it the the other team is beginning to fall on that. We will we will win that fight over time. Uh, but I think it will take the same kind of effort that we did with uh, right to try with right to know. Great. Well, we have 12 minutes left and two more questions in the queue. So I think we'll just about make it. Uh, Jonathan Risch is next. Thank you. I was wondering if you could elaborate further on entitlement reform and perhaps in particular social security. You're advocating that we not raise taxes yet we face what a $23 trillion, $22 trillion, how to keep track, but within weeks, I'll be right. Uh, debt, we have a trillion dollar deficit. Um, entitlement spending and Social Security make up 80% of the federal budget. It seems kind of fanciful to think that we're going to be able to um, recover our, um, that we're going to be able to balance the budget and eventually pay down the debt without seriously um, attacking those issues. And in particular, you've kind of addressed uh, welfare, and, but I was wondering if you could address Social Security and the concept more generally. Sure. Um, separate out Social Security and Medicare because people pay something in for that. And as far as they considered, they've paid for it. Okay. You get more out. If you live a long time, you get more out of it than you put in, but that's not the way people Set that to the side and when you're talking about reforming that. And this is what Trump, when he ran, said, I'm not going to touch that for anybody who's on it or near it. Uh, and I don't think you get very far if you start talking about reforming or changing those for anybody unless they're like 45 and under. The uh, means-tested programs, and there are about more than 150 of them, they're not all that big, but um, that's a big chunk also of the federal budget. And you can block grant those out to the states just as Clinton did with all the same uh, uh, liberalization of allowing each state to deal with, to be as helpful as they can in the way that they can. Um, that I think is the, the easiest low fruit on that one. We will win on social security and move it from a defined contribution plan, unfortunately a Ponzi scheme given the ratios, but a defined country, you know, Ponzi was a economic advisor to Mussolini later in life. Uh, uh, fun fact to know and tell when you Google the guy. Um, he had a career after being in trouble for Ponzi schemes. Uh, but the uh, watch the states. The states are doing this now. The states are moving from defined uh, benefit plans, meaning you retire and here's what you get, to defined contribution, meaning you put in 10% of your salary, the state will put in 10% of your salary. When you get to retirement, that pile of money is yours and you can take it anywhere you want, but that will get you the same kind of cash that the defined benefit plans do, but only if you put enough money in and the state puts enough money in. Uh, Utah, five, six years ago now, um, passed a law that shifted all new hires to defined contribution plans. So they are phasing out having an unfunded liability at their state level. A lot of states have moved partially or wholly in that uh, direction, in, in, including Rhode Island and New Jersey. This is not just something that red states do. Um, you see the lady governor from uh, Rhode Island, you know, basically said, you know, spending money you don't have is, she may be paraphrasing the, the French guy, it's not, spending money you don't have is not uh, left wing, it's stupid. Um, I think that's a Spanish socialist. But anyway, uh, 
she she actually was very helpful in leading that beat the public sector unions and then became governor won the democratic primary won the general showed that you could take on an issue that many people would think is the third rail of politics pensions public sector pensions but got elected in rhode island not texas rhode island um so i think we watch the states and see how states manage and at the end of the day there will be a left-right coalition when the left realizes that the biggest driver of inequality in the United States is Social Security. They take 15% of your salary and don't let you save it. They promise to give some of it to you if you make it to 65, which is not very good for people whose life expectancy is not as good as other people's. But the reason why some people in the United States have less save life savings, income, uh, wealth, um, life savings, is because Social Security told you they were saving that money for you and they didn't. And they're actually, when we first pushed this a while ago, we got the major, uh, is it African-American, Af the African-American statesman, uh, did a big cover story on the best thing that could happen to the African-American community is for everybody to have 15% of their salary saved for them for their retirement instead of taken from them and not saved. Uh, that's where the inequality on people's assets come from and we've made real progress because government employees now in many states are developing real sizable for the equivalents of 401ks and there's a political movement that gets that 60 million americans have a 401k 50 million americans have an ira 80 million households have one or the other but all those other households have the pretend savings of social security and at some point, the representatives and from the various committees that are disadvantaged by Social Security's not saving for your retirement will see that, and that's when the deal gets made. And I think that it will will win. <laughs> okay, last last question, and I'm going to state it on behalf of the questioner but apologize to him, I think it's him, for not knowing exactly how to pronounce his name. It's Tavin, either Pechet or Peche. Uh, and it reads as follows, how, if at all, is the pledge consistent with compromise? Oh, certainly. Uh, compromise, well, there's compromise is getting to where I wanna go more slowly than I wanna get there. That's compromising. Moving, and if, if, if I'm here in uh, DC and I wanna get to Los Angeles and I'm in Missouri, that's compromise. It's on the way to California. But if my feet are wet and everybody around me is speaking French, that's called losing. That's called heading in the wrong direction. And so as a center-right activist, I want liberty to be expanded. I want people to have more opportunities. I want them to run their own lives. I want the government to back off and give people space to be themselves. Uh, and therefore, everything that increases liberty is fine. I think that a lot of the silly laws we have, you'd look at them and say, what we put people in prison for having marijuana or hemp or this, that, or the other thing. Stupid, let's get rid of it. Well, you can't just get rid of it. We've got to work through the very slow and burdensome process of government to get it done, which means compromising as you go. I think a lot of people in prison shouldn't be in prison, but you have to work through that so it takes time. So there's not, I'm not interested in compromising on liberty. 
I'm interested in compromising on getting to liberty. I'm willing to compromise on getting towards liberty. And if, if you mean getting things, if by compromise you mean getting things done, okay, I would argue that we've had our greatest successes when you take the false hope of spending your way out of it by taking tax increases off the table. That's when at the state level, even in Washington, under Obama's president, uh, under the modern moderate Republicans in the House and the Senate, guys, uh, we got very serious reform in spending as a result of the sequester. Everything I want? No. Pretty good start? Yes. Uh, and so uh, I think that we can do a lot of working together once you take the off the table a tax increase, which simply means nobody has to reform anything. We'll just keep doing everything we've been doing for 150 years, some of which we now know is counterproductive and stupid and destructive, but we'll just fund that and we'll fund the guy's newest idea. Um, I want new good ideas to be the enemies and the predators of bad, stupid laws and programs so that we get rid of the old ones and do something that's less destructive uh, and, and gets less in the way of, of liberty. And the great news is there are a whole bunch of things where right and left can get together and agree on this stuff from procedural things to real laws to cutting laws. I mean, how long people stand in prison is kind of a tough nut to crack. And we've had some real successes in 50 states and, and in Washington, D.C. Thanks, Grover. And uh, we have a couple of minutes left. I'm just going to do a quick wrap and then, and then thank you uh, for sharing your time with us. Uh, a number of years ago, you said something that made a huge impact on me. And I'd like to, I'd like to read it to you. Uh, you said, I'm not in favor of abolishing the government. I just want to shrink it down to the size where we can drown it in a bathtub. Uh, and uh, that, that quotation, I think you were being serious, but correct me if I'm wrong, you know, convinced me that there were some areas where the likes of me and the likes of you were not gonna be able to find common ground. Uh, because along with many Americans, you know, I think that the right size of government is substantially larger than anything you could drown in a bathtub. But I think what you've done over the past hour, you know, is to show that it is possible to define, draw a line between areas that are subject to compromise and those in, in your view that aren't. Uh, and so the question before us as a country, because I think most people would draw the same line someplace, maybe not where you drew it, but someplace, the question before the country is whether there is enough space where compromise, as you define it, is feasible to really solve the major questions before the country and to move us in the direction of what most Americans believe is the right direction. Uh, and that's, you know, and I think the next few years are going to be a great experiment in testing the proposition that there is enough common ground to do the work that needs to be done for the country. And I'm sure despite our differences, you and I share the hope that there will be, there is, uh, and that the job of the elected officials we support and 
our own job and the job of the organizations we belong to is to tirelessly, tirelessly search for that common ground as best we can. Uh, so in that, in that spirit, uh, I think you've, you've said some very important things today, especially about criminal justice reform uh, that we had listened to with great attention. Uh, and uh, we hope this isn't the last time uh, that you'll share a little bit of your time with us. So once again, thanks. And uh, we are adjourned. Thank you. Thank you very much. Grover Norquist argues that true bipartisanship is not best represented when moderate Republicans and moderate Democrats work together, since they are not that far apart ideologically, but rather when liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans work to find a solution. Some examples are criminal justice reform and civil forfeiture, where liberals and conservatives can find common cause, even if it is for different reasons. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.